You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. Please be seated, church. Uh, my name is Mark. I'm one of the leaders here at the White House campus, but it's been a few weeks since I've been here. Uh, between Buffalo River trips and Spain, uh, time with the family. So I've been gone. In fact, I was talking to Clint, who's been playing bass, and introduced myself. And he's like, yeah, I've been here for the last seven weeks. Uh, so he gets better attendance than I do. Uh, but I have to say, this morning, these songs are perfect for the passage uh, that we're going to go to. So I want to invite you to Psalm 3 this morning. The very beginning of the Psalms, we're going to read it, and then we will walk through it uh, together. And I pray that God would give us ears to hear the truth, eyes to see it, hearts to believe it. Um, so Psalm chapter 3, it's eight verses, and this is what the word of the Lord says. O Lord, many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying to of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy heel. Selah. I lay down and I slept and I woke up again and the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of my many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O God, for you strike all of my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. And this is the word of the Lord. Let us have ears to hear. So this psalm is all about how we deal with trouble. In fact, a guy named Dave Snowden uh, simply said there are four ways or four categories of trouble that we're going to have. He says they're simple and we like those. He says there's complex, there's complicated, and then there's chaotic. Well, another guy much simpler, Wayne Purnell, says this way, there's three types of problems. There's past, present, and future. Well, that was genius. But here's the thing, every one of us, we, we have problems, we have difficulties, we have struggles, and there's all kinds of advice on how to avoid them and even how to get out. So how do you, how are you at dealing with frustrations? If you're like me, you deal with them with lots of grace and simple, uh, it, it's just easy, to, if you're like me, to deal with frustrations. In fact, I've been in the yard all day yesterday. I came in and I said, sit down in my chair. And in the chair was a pillow and a blanket. I sit down and threw that pillow and blanket and threw it across. You can't even sit down in this house. And I looked over and I see the godly eye roll. But how do we handle challenging situations or even dealing with difficult people? And more importantly, what are we going to do when our lives seem to be falling apart? Or what should we do when the circumstances mount and our lives fall apart? Well, imagine you wake up one morning. The people that you've trusted, they betray you. 
One of your children actually rises up and turns against you. You get kicked out of your home and everything you have believed about God is now being challenged. Well, when our lives fall apart, there's psalms like this, Psalm chapter 3. And I can't express how much this psalm has meant to me and uh, been helpful to me over the past several weeks. But this is how I want to break this passage up, and you're going to love this this morning. You're going to see four progressions. And the inner Baptist just oozed out of me when I came up with this. There's four of them, and guess what? They all start with the same letter. We're going to see trouble. The next phase or progression is truth, trust, and triumph. Man, that was God-ordained right there. Four T's. Easy for us to remember. We're going to see the trouble. We're going to see truth. We're going to see trust. And eventually, we'll see triumph. And at the end, there's a lot of them, but I want to pull out four important steps that I have seen in this passage. But the overarching truth that this psalm has told me over and over again is this, that God is not stingy with his peace. He's not, he is not stingy with his peace. So let's look at the trouble where it all begins. And in your Bible, you're gonna see at the very beginning of this psalm is usually in italics, it's a heading. And this is how it reads. A psalm of David, so we're given who writes it, when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, here's some important uh, facts about the Psalms, especially this one. It's the first Psalm that we see that's given a title. In fact, this title even shows up in the original Hebrew Bible. The second thing is this. It's only one of 14 Psalms that is tied to a historical event and they're all in the lives of David. And this is one of them. And the third fact is it's a lament psalm. It's a psalm that we see David crying out to God. So here's the historical episode that happens. You read about it in 2 Samuel, begins in chapter 15 through chapter 18. And, and here's the gist of it. So David is king. He's ruling in Jerusalem, the holy city. And in this city, we have the tabernacle. We have the Ark of the Covenant is there. That David went from this young shepherd boy who killed bears and lions to defeating Goliath. And he's been anointed king over all of Israel. But he's constantly going to war. And that's what kings did back in this time. But we read about, there's one time he doesn't go to war. He stays behind. And during his vacation, he catches the glimpse of a young woman. He ends up committing adultery and even murdering her husband. Well, God forgives David of these horrible sins, but then God made him a promise. He said, David, you will have the sword will never depart from your house for as long as you live. That he is going to constantly have conflict, and that's exactly what happens. But it made me think that God knows about David's Troubles. He even proclaimed it. The sword will not depart from your hand. You will have trouble after trouble after trouble. But not only does God know it, he allows it. And that's a challenging thought that every trouble that David is going to go through, God knows and he allows it. 
So then there comes Absalom. Absalom is his son. And Absalom had a sister who was violated by one of David's other sons. So what does he do? He kills his brother and he flees. Some time goes by and he's permitted to come back to Jerusalem. We think he's excited about that. But for two years, his father, David, the king, will not see him or speak to him. So in Absalom, man, this creates frustration. It insults him and it angers him. So what does he do? He begins gathering a number of people. Scripture tells us he wins over their hearts. And then he is going to lead a rebellion to overthrow his father. So Absalom and his army, they approach Jerusalem and Jerusalem uh, and David has to flee literally for his life. In fact, the picture you see in 2 Samuel chapter 15 verse 30 shows you his situation. It says that David went up to ascend the Mount of Olives weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. It is a scene of absolute despair for David. He's got trouble upon trouble upon trouble. And I think about this. I've had nothing in my life that would even compare to that. But we all have it to some degree. So notice how David describes his troubles in verse 1 and 2. And you're going to see David is attacked on two different fronts. And this is how verse 1 begins. Oh Lord, many are my foes. Many are rising against me. So Absalom's army is growing and growing and they are coming after David, trying to kill him. So he is, his body is being attacked. His life is being attacked. He says, many are my foes and he is absolutely correct. But the attacks are not just on his life. They're not just on his body. Look at verse 2. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God, Selah. So they're not just attacking his life. They are coming after David the king. And this is a reference to his predecessor, Saul. Saul commits many sins. And the scriptures tell us that God withdrew from him. So David's also committed several sins. Many probably know about it. So what they're doing, they're trying to get David to believe that God has also withdrawn and abandoned him. So they're not just attacking his life. It's a psychological attack. It's a spiritual attack. They're trying to get David to question God's goodness. They're trying to get David to question if he is for him anymore. It's an attack on his faith. That everything he believed about God is being challenged. I know when I go through trials, it seems that I feel that. It can be something as simply as, I don't know. Um, the other day, Marcus and I are getting ready to go to Spain and waiting on his passport. We did all the expediting and end up having to call trying to find out and thinking, man, we've gone through all of this. Our church came together and raised all this money. We're not going to get to go because of a passport. That every attack seems to have a spiritual component to get us to question, is God good? Is he really for me? And that's exactly what is happening. When we think about the context of this psalm, we can see that David is also being very honest. 
He's very, being very open about what he's feeling and what he's being challenged with. And it seems like there is no limit to his misery. I mean, people are abandoning him. His son is now rising up against him. He had to leave his home and his throne, the ark, the holy city, and leave all of that behind. And now he's fearing for his life. I have to believe he was tempted into thinking, you know what? They're right. God has absolutely abandoned me. And the truth is, in fact, God had all the reasons to do exactly that. David had given God all the ammunition he needed. But notice what he does. He moves from trouble to truth in verse 3. He says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. So what does he do in the face of all the trouble, all the doubt that is coming, getting him to question, fearing for his life? He overwhelms those voices of doubt with truth. The doubt he's hearing from other people. I mean, they were shouting and throwing things as he was leaving Jerusalem. But I believe there was also that doubt just inside him. The voice in his head. But he overwhelms all of that doubt, all that confusion with truth. Lord, you are a shield about me, my glory, the lifter of my head. So what do these images show us? First of all, he uses shield. That shield is this source of protection. And he is proclaiming that truth, even when it probably didn't feel like that. It had to be easy to doubt. But in this picture, there are two things that we often think of. And the first one is this little shield that you would put on your arm and you would go into battle and you would use this shield to block a blow from somebody. And then in your other hand was a sword that you would then strike with. But that's not the image here. There's actually another type of shield. It was a large shield, usually the size of a door that would almost begin to wrap around you. This was the type of shield that you would use when you were following your king to take a city. You would create a line, you would hold the shield in front of you and you would move it closer and closer to the city. Holding it over your head to block anything that might be thrown down because notice he says, you are a shield about me or your Bibles will say around me. And the picture is this was the shield you used when you were following the orders of your king when you're following the orders of your commander into battle. So I think the picture is this, that God is, he's saying, God, you are my true source of protection. And I will continue to move forward, even in the midst of all of my trouble. He is choosing to move forward in obedience because God is his protection. He doesn't allow his fear to control his actions. But the second truth he proclaims is, you are my glory. Now, why would he need to say, God, you are my glory? The reason is probably because there was a time where he wasn't. That David was seeking his own glory above other things. And I believe he's come to realize that. And then he says, God, you are the lifter of my head. And this is such a powerful picture. Because when you're in trouble, especially by your own doing, we get this demeanor with the bowed head. It's a head of shame, it's a look of 
of uh, shame where we know we've brought this upon ourselves because of our actions. It's a down-looking face. And that made me think of little Thomas. Years ago, I coached a lot of baseball when my son was going through. And we had this little boy named Thomas. He was always smaller than the other kids. But he just had the best attitude. He always had a smile. I loved coaching Thomas. Every time he'd get to bat, you know, it was fingers and legs crossed. You taught him everything you could do. And Thomas would get up time after time after time and strike out. So my friend Drew was helping me coach that time. And I can remember the moment that Thomas got into the batter's box and the pitch came and he connected with the ball. And it rolled right down the first baseline. <laughs> the first baseman picked it up and stepped on the bag. And man, here came Thomas, head down, head down. Drew walked over to him and he said, look at me, Thomas. He said, I know you're frustrated. But he said, you realize that's the first time that you ever connected with the ball. And all of a sudden, his whole demeanor changed. Next game, guess what? Thomas gets his first base hit. And the place went wild for little Thomas. And he says, God, you are the lifter of my head. So David moves from trouble and fighting the trouble that is outside him, even within him, and he uses truth. So what does this do? This moves David to now trust. Look at verse four through six. He says, I cried aloud to the Lord. Not just in the quietness of his own self, not in his own head. Out loud, he cries and he is being honest with God about what is going on and what he is feeling. So he doesn't stuff his fear. He doesn't ignore his emotions. He prays them. He prays his fear. He prays his misery. He prays his emotions. And God answered him. But notice what it doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us what God said. But it shows us something. Think of all the voices David could have been listening to. The people that are with him. I'm sure there was lots of chatter going on about what's going on. The people chasing him. The people that were shouting at him as he left Jerusalem. People yelling as he was leaving. Even the voice or voices in his own head. What this shows us that David was listening, even in the midst of his troubles, to the voice of God. This moves David to trust even more and to believe that God is not stingy with his peace. Even when all of the circumstances around him are shouting, he can doubt that. That God is not stingy with his peace. So then what does he do in verse 5? He says, I laid down and I slept. What a picture of trust. He is being chased by an army. He is just across the Jordan River. And he lays down and he sleeps. And he says, I woke again. And the reason he realizes that the Lord sustained me. The armies are chasing him and he lays down and he sleeps. He is totally defenseless. 
But then he proclaims, he speaks his trust in God in verse 6. He says, I will not be afraid of the many thousands of people. And he's not exaggerating. Who have set themselves against me all around. But here's the question I keep asking over and over. That sounds great. But how? I mean, his current circumstances in no way are supporting his confidence. There's no way. This would not be me. But he goes from troubles to truth to trust. Somehow, in some way, it happens. And we see it by him simply laying down and going to sleep and trusting that God was going to do what only he could do. So he moves from trouble to truth to trust. But then we see the triumph. Now this is not written as this is happening. He is writing this and notice he's writing it as a past tense in verse 7. Arise, O Lord. In fact, some are saying all that God needs to do is stand up. And notice what he says. Save me, O God. For you strike all of my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. So how in the world does he trust I think he's, his confidence now, he is realizing, is not in himself. I mean, David was ruling from Jerusalem on the throne and has now been stripped of all of that and he realizes he is absolutely powerless to save himself. At this point, David's faith is not in himself. That God will strike my enemies. He will break their teeth. Salvation comes only from God. And this is David asking God to do all this. And this is so cool. Watch this. David is not asking for just deliverance. He's not saying just save me. He's asking God to strike them on the cheek and to break their teeth. He is asking for absolute victory. He's not wanting just to survive but to triumph over his fears and misery. And the truth is, David has no grounds to ask God for any of this. There's not enough goodness in David. He doesn't have enough merit. He's not earned this for God to save him. But deep down, David believes this. As bad as I've made the situation, all the, the stuff that I've done to contribute to my own troubles... In spite of all of that, he believes God is not stingy with his peace. So let me show you some things I took out of this. Wrote myself some personal notes because I know frustrations are going to come, whether it's a blanket and a pillow in a chair, or it's waiting for something I have no control over, or maybe a very difficult situation. So when the circumstances are mounting, Life seems to be falling apart. It's just one trouble upon one trouble. Or people may be attacking us. And there's so many, but here's four things I saw. Notice in verses 2, 4, and 8, you see one word. It's a musical term, and this term is selah, which simply means to pause. 
So it's written in a song, and David often did this, and he puts it in here three different times. So I think one thing that I can do is simply to stop and take a breath. When the circumstances are mounting or the trouble comes, first thing, stop and just take a deep breath. But here's the second thing I saw. It's in the beginning of verse three. And it has to do with that shield. David says that God was a shield about or around him. It was the shield that you used when you followed your commander into battle. So even through troubles and even through trials and even through difficulties, it's a reminder of how important my obedience is. That obedience is so vital, especially in the midst of during struggles and trials and troubles, that disobedience is only going to make things worse. That obedience is important even in the midst of trials. That God, yes, because you are my protector, I will continue to follow you. Even with the mistakes of the past, in this moment, my obedience is important. I have to stop and think, okay, in this trouble, in this struggle, in this trial, what is the right thing I can do? Because disobedience will only make things worse. But then David said, oh Lord, you are my glory. In 3B, the thing I saw from this to remind me of how can I, when life falls apart, what can I do? I wrote, check my glory. Because troubled followed by obedience, this is where God loves to show up. And it's an opportunity for me to check my glory. Glory is this word that means weight. It means significance. And when you think about David's life, everything he had built his glory on is now taken. Popular king, not anymore. Good father, man, that illusion's way gone. Moral character, well, let's see, adultery, murder, lying, not much to go on. Even power, not anymore. All of the good things that he had found his security in, God strips him of all of them. And right after that, David proclaims, Lord, you are the lifter of my head. Reminding himself that the only thing that really matters is what God thinks of him. It's living as an audience of one, reminding myself that ultimately God's approval is all that matters. And I think this is especially important during troubles and struggles because I can so easily become my own worst enemy. By listening to myself instead of preaching to myself. So let's check my glory. And here's the fourth one. It's in verse four. So David is so honest and he praises fear. He praises struggle. He praises doubt. And he says, God answered me from his holy hill. This holy hill, this is where the tabernacle was. This is where the ark was. This is where the sacrifices took place. This was where God's presence dwelled. It is the place where you experienced God's peace. It's where his favor was seen. But I know for me, my focus, it is so difficult often when struggles and difficulties come. It doesn't take much 
for my perspective and my focus to get off. It's hard having the right perspective. But we remember that every difficult situation, every difficult circumstance, it all has a spiritual component. That difficult times and troubles and trials, it's always the temptation to question God's favor. Is he actually for me? Because today the tabernacle's gone. The ark is gone. It can seem as if God has abandoned his people. And it's easy to ask, God, where are you in the midst of the troubles and the trials and the temptations? It's easy. It's so easy for us to question, God, where are you? So what do we do? We look to another hill. Because just outside that city, there was another hill where trouble was on full display. The greatest trouble the world has ever known. How was God going to deal with sinful people that allowed sin and death to be their future? How was God going to make a peace where there was no peace? It was on that hill that God gave his son to undeserving sinners. It's where he provided a salvation that they would never be able to earn and never deserve. And I believe our Christian life is to be this part where we are growing in our understanding of the miracle that happened to us. And focusing on that keeps our perspective. Because if God would go to that length to save souls, I believe there is enough strength for any battle we would ever face. If he would do that for undeserving sinners, we can trust that he will work for us even in our greatest battles here on earth. Believing that God is not stingy with his peace. Because David had no right to ask this of God. He'd given God all the ammunition he needed to abandon him. But David had remembered a promise far before his time. In fact, when you look at the verbiage that he uses, you see this used again. You see this used in the book of Genesis. God is talking to Abraham and he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Go get some animals, cut them in half and divide them. And what does God do with Abraham? He puts him to sleep. And he carries him through those animals. And this was a vow that said this, that if I break this vow, what is done to these animals, the same would happen to me. And God made a covenant with Abraham that even in Abraham's sinfulness and rebellion, God would remain faithful to his word. And I believe David is reflecting back on that. So how can he have so much faith and trust and triumph through all of this? He's remembering back and believing if God did that, he will not be stingy with his peace. And I pray we can believe that. Church, pray with me. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.